Before we get into this episode, we'd love to tell you about the fifth annual ImageCon, which is taking place on October 19th and 20th of 2021, where Cloudinary is bringing together thought leaders across all facets of visual media to discuss what it takes to create and deliver the most engaging visual experiences possible. You won't want to miss this complimentary virtual event, so register now at imagecon.com. All right, on to the episode. Welcome to Dev Jams. This is where we talk about exciting, innovative, inspiring projects that developers are making every single day, but they're doing it with Cloudinary. And we are so excited to be talking about today's project. With that said, before we get into all the details about it, I have to introduce my consummate co-host, Becky Peltz, who joins me for every episode and these interviews. Becky, it is awesome to have you again. Oh, thanks, Sam. I'm really happy to be here and happy to be able to introduce this because this is one of my favorite episodes of Dev Jams. I think there's a lot to learn here and you find out about some free things, which is always fun. I completely agree. This is definitely one where this is one of my favorite episodes too. Mostly because I just happen to like the person that's behind the subject matter. I think Oliver, our guest for this episode, he, he's a really nice person. He's also a true developer. He's been doing this for many years. Just like every amazing Canadian I know, he's as polite as can be. So it's definitely, it was a wonderful conversation with him. I remember when I started at Cloudinary over three years ago now, one of the first support tickets I ever helped answer as part of my onboarding period was to Oliver. I was like, if all customers are as nice as Oliver, this is going to be a great place to work. And luckily that's been proven somewhat true. So definitely this was a case where Oliver's been a part of great projects. He's always tried to find vendors that he really has good relationships with and include them in their projects. And this one that we're going to be talking about for Iconduct, one of his projects, it's no different. It's definitely where Cloudinary plays a big part of this. And I'm really excited for him later on this episode to walk through all the different aspects of how he's using Cloudinary to deliver vector files, but also display them on his website as nice transparent PNGs with all of the various centering and resizing that is taking place with the transformations. Yeah. And you know, one of the neat things too about him is that he is a co-founder of Stencil which is a very popular place to create all kinds of graphics for social media. And for him to take on this project where he is spending time creating processes to curate essentially open source icons is really admirable. So let's get right into it. Let's go talk to Oliver. And then once Oliver and I and Becky wrap up our conversation, stick around because We'll have some key takeaways for you about some of the main topics that we think were covered in this long form interview and all that can help you in your next development projects. Oliver, welcome to the show. How's it going? We're, we're doing really well, but I think we're doing better because we're getting to talk to you today because you're doing a lot of really cool things. And yeah. it's also a case where the things that you've been working on in many ways, over the years, you're utilizing Cloudinary for a lot of projects. And that, of course, that makes me happy. I'm sure that makes Becky happy too. Um, so it's wonderful to finally have you on a Dev Jams episode to talk through one of the projects that you are working on, which I personally am very, very excited about, which is that Icon Duck project you have. 
when you started working in web development, working in technology, and you started saying certain gaps, because it looks like you have your hands in lots of different projects. Yeah. What, what ultimately are you trying to achieve? What are some of those big goals that Oliver has when it comes to developing projects for the web? It's funny. I don't, I don't necessarily think generally through like a larger strategy or a goal. I think uh, since I was a kid, I've, I've been coding since I was 13, 14. I've always just liked kind of trying out new things. I mean, I think anyone who starts developing at a young age, I think one of the things I was fascinated with was like, oh, I can create something that then exists online that other people from wherever can access. It was like that kind of magic feeling as a kid. And so I think as, as my career has progressed, I think I just would just kind of keep getting stuck on like, oh, it's cool. I can like provision a server in Oregon that's going to like convert images overnight for me, or I can you know, ask, like plug into this, like Google machine learning API where I can pass it an image and it's going to give me a bunch of tags. I think there's always this element of just kind of wanting to try out different technologies. And yeah, I'm like icon duck is, it's, was very much that I, I've got, I've had experience with Cloudinary for seven, eight years now. So I think there's always this element of like, oh, cool. Like I never thought I could do this thing. Let me see if I can do it. Like embarrassingly, yeah, there's, there's often not that much strategy. There's like, obviously things that push me in a certain way, like icon duck came about because of a product stencil that I run it, we relied very heavily on icons. So that kind of brought me into that world. But yeah, like I think generally I just, I like to see where my interests go and then kind of tinker around with things and, and see where things go from there. I, I think it's also how a lot of developers kind of look yeah. at it. They may not have like a broader strategy, but it's like, they see this thing or like, this seems like a cool project to do, or yeah. this seems like it fits maybe a personal goal that they have or a personal need that they have. And they hope that others could benefit from it. Yeah. I, I think for developers, a lot of us get into it because we do like the connectivity and we like getting out on the web, things like that. And images are necessary, but they're not maybe part of your formal computer education. So it's like, how did you address that? Like you've got this giant amount of data involved with images, way more than like your database. And, you know, how did you approach that when you first got into working with images? It was, it was I mean, I don't want to too quickly off the, off the jump, get too complimentary on Cloudinary, but I don't, I, I was when we, so Stencil is a graphic design tool and it allows people to just basically jump in and design graphics without almost any like design experience or downloading any software. And one of the things we ran into really quickly was like, okay, now someone like designs this image and they want to download a cropped version of it, or they want to resize it, or they want to convert it from a JPEG to PNG. And one of the challenges we had was like, you know, my, my background is engineering and software, but I exactly like you said you know when you're taught development like i studied cs and math in university there's not that much emphasis on images almost at all there's maybe algorithms to understand like how do images get compressed and that kind of thing but where the, you kind of get left off is like okay well like how do you resize an image and then very cs centric approach of like okay you download this open source image magic software and you compile it and then you run your binaries through it and it's a very like engineering heavy centric, whereas with Cloudinary, it kind of abstracted that away. It's like, okay, here's your object. Tell us what you want from it, which is a PNG version of it or an image that's like trimmed. So at the beginning, it was, it was very daunting. We, we built our own image transformation servers, scripts, and then we stumbled on Cloudinary years ago. And it was just great because it abstracted all that away, in part because 
you know, as I think as a developer, especially if you're a small team, you've got all these things, or I've got all these things I'm trying to balance. And the last thing I want to do is do like image servers at the same time. So yeah, like I don't want to just harp on Cloud Mary entirely. It's, it's tough because you have millions of images. You have all these different business needs for like how they're going to be used. And ideally the, the, the challenge is like, how do you abstract that away? So you're not spending your time, you know, rebuilding the, the wheel kind of thing, right? Well, yeah. And, and if you're in a business and you, you want to make a profit, there's a high yeah. cost to storage. You know? So you have to look at that too. And I mean, to that point, right, if you have a page that loads, it's one thing having the page load and serving up that content. If you would not have 50 different images that are resized and you're running your own image resigning server, you just like multiply the load by 50 in terms of memory and CPU and bandwidth. So that was like abstracting that out was pretty key for us. I mean, we learned that pretty quickly, like, oh, we can't, we can't run because <laughs> it's not going to be a good use of our time, right? And so with the service like Stencil, where you're helping to develop images in a way for people that are doing this, maybe no Photoshop, need quick social images, things like that, which I've personally used Stencil for. I think it's a great tool. Yeah. With the segue to say, okay, you have this project is very image-based where you're allowing people to create things very simply and using Cloudinary for that. What was the, the segue or what was the catalyst that allowed you to think, I want to start this additional project, which became Icon Duck? Yeah. So there's a, the, the open source photo and icon world is, it's pretty interesting. Like, you know, I never thought I would learn about it as much as I did. And I would imagine a lot of people out there know about like the, the large sites. So photos. There's Unsplash, there's Pixabay, there's Pexels. For icons, there's the Now Project, there's Icon Zay, Flat Icon. There's like tons of these kind of quasi marketplaces, quasi open source initiatives to like pull together open source designers and photographers and kind of make all that information accessible. The place where, you know, where Icon Duck was a, a jump off from Stencil was there are hundreds of thousands of open source icons that just aren't in one central place. And I think part of that is because the profit motive isn't there. I don't want to get too Marxist or anything like that, but you know, when you have all these designers who design these beautiful graphics, oftentimes they'll like create all their own landing page or they'll put them on GitHub or they'll put them on like DeviantArt or, or some sort of site just to kind of contribute it out to the, the community. But where it gets weird is a lot of those photo and icon marketplaces naturally aren't going to aggregate those in because oftentimes there is a bit of a profit motive. They want to be able to procure licenses for these photos or icons and then resell them. And that's totally fine. I got no problem with that. But what it ended up doing is it created a bunch of silos for all of this open source content that just didn't really fit in anywhere. And so with Icon Duck, with Stencil, when you're using Stencil, you can search through a bunch of icon providers that we've partnered with to find icons to use in your design. But what we noticed was a lot of the ones that are open source out there weren't part of these APIs, weren't part of these marketplaces. And so what we wanted to do was, okay, let's spend a bunch of time, find out, you know, these hundreds of different repos and start to collect all of these vectors, create some sort of rudimentary tagging system so that now all these things that were completely siloed away because there wasn't really a motive for any marketplace to include them are searchable. That was kind of the sort of the reason for bringing that in. And even at this moment, Stencil doesn't integrate directly with Icon. That was very much, let's like put this out there and just like kind of make it easier for anyone who's like stumbling from GitHub repo to GitHub repo to find a, like a nice icon that they like. 
And what's interesting, you, you said the word vector, which is a very important yeah. thing that we need to kind of unravel here. When you're talking about vector files and then web-friendly vector files, in many cases, you're talking about SVGs. So is that kind of what the goal is with this, something like is being able to make sure that we're deploying all these open source SVGs in a, a distributable way? Yeah. And so, you, I mean, again, developers know the challenge of semantics. I don't like the word icon, despite the fact that it's an icon duck, because an icon is more, you know, it's contextualized in terms of how you use a vector. I always use the term vector. SVG is also like the format type. But for me, vector just represents something that is not rasterized, right? It's something that can scale up and down and never lose any quality or anything like that. And I called it icon that because conventionally that's what people think of. They're like, I'm going to search for a frog icon or a tree icon or something like that. But yeah, so internally we reference everything as a vector, but a vector could be, you know, clip art circa 1995, or it could be an icon that represents something in the real world, like an envelope or a check mark. And then now and now, I mean, you guys must know this too. There's this huge movement into illustrations and those are generally vectors, but they're kind of like designed not to represent symbols or actions or anything, but actually to be like infinitely scalable, like almost series, like a person sitting at a computer or someone like standing at a whiteboard and kind of scribbling something. So those are vectors and we, and we actually include them. We reference them as illustrations rather than icons. But yeah, the goal was to basically take anything that we could find that would scale infinitely. So is a vector or SVG and bring that into one kind of quasi repository where you can search through everything. But the key for us was like, it couldn't be a bit that couldn't be a rasterized image. It had to be something that if you want to use it for at a 440 or you want to use it at a 4,000 by 4,000, it's going to work consistently across that. And it's also where, when you typically are working with these vector files, if you did need it at 40 by 40 or 40, 400 by 400, by using a vector, you're guaranteeing that there's never pixelation. There's never going to be a case where someone gets something and they're less than satisfied from the, the end goal of what IconDuck is doing. So I think that was a really smart move to make sure you're focusing on the vector as a vector first distribution service. So I think that makes a lot of sense in my opinion. And it also just makes our life easier. Like, like with Stencil, for example, we could have gone the route of allowing people to search through open source bitmaps. But one of the first things you're going to run into is someone chooses a little PNG or JPEG that's 80 by 80. They want to download an image that's 2000 by 2000. And it's not even that it's not going to look good. They're going to think your software is buggy. They'll be like, well, why? Like this worked fine on my screen where I downloaded it. It's, it's something went wrong. Like you guys, like something must be wrong with your system. And, and it's a very hard thing to get across to someone who doesn't have a strong foundation in design to, uh, to be like, okay, like. A bitmap is this thing and a vector is that thing. It's abstractly kind of complicated unless you start to like really understand the fundamentals of, of images. So that like part of the reason for us to ever focus on vectors was partially just to like make it easier for people to like not run into those bugs, right? Yeah. You know, I have to say, I, when I discovered SVG many years ago, it was it, when things were going mobile, I thought, this is awesome. I never have to, I'll just put it on there and it'll just do what I want. But, you know, we now are in a world where we're working with responsive images, you know, so we're, we are having, we don't get to use SVGs, we have to use PNGs and, and then we, we need to scale them for, you know, we need to use media queries and whatnot to get them so that they show. And I think your work here on IconDoc shows that 
that you had to do that too. I mean, because you present them as PNGs for choosing, you know, for yeah. when you're shopping for them, say, but then you deal with that all kind of in the background with CSS. So it's, it's kind of neat that you've got both the SVG made available, but then you also are working with them in a way that a lot of developers are forced to work. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I mean, so yeah, like Icon, Icon Duck, as you, as you introduced, is just kind of, you know, you land on the site and you beat some kind of bunch of icons that are grouped into sets. And then conversely, you can just search through all 115,000 and find an icon, right? And when we first started working on it, there was like that question, well, do we serve this as a SVG, as a vector, because that's what they are and they scale infinitely, or do we convert it into a PNG and naturally we're using Cloudinary for the conversion? Probably you can run into with vectors is when you design a bitmap like image, like in Photoshop or something, when you save that image, what you see is what everyone sees, right? Like obviously you're going to have scaling up and down issues, but you're not, you kind of design the aesthetic and that is represented in these little pixels that like throughout the image. So if you look at it on your phone or on your computer, for the most part, it looks consistent. The problem you run into with vectors is Vectors are written in code. So there are tools that abstract that out, like Illustrator, where you can kind of write the lines, like draw the lines and circles and shapes and stuff like that and color them. At the end of the day, a vector is just markup. It's just code that represents the aesthetic of what you see. And, but because of that, like abstraction, one designer who designs a football vector and another designer who designs a football vector, they might render completely differently because they put white space inside of the code in one place, or they put HTML comments into the, the vector file, or they like wrote it somewhat differently where one person is using like a large view box or a viewport and the other one's using a really small one. So the problem we read into is initially we were going to serve these up as vectors on icon.com, but then you start to get into some inconsistencies with well, what does it look like in Safari? Well, Safari renders this vector with a bit of padding on the left or everything like, you know, if the view box isn't perfectly like a view box is an attribute inside of the vector file. And if they put a comma in the wrong place, Chrome will show it fine, but Firefox, it'll just show a blank page, right? So we read into this, like, yeah, like, you know, the, the goal of, of vectors is to like make it abstract so it can scale infinitely and it could work perfectly and look every, like look really well. But it's one thing if a designer is looking at it in Illustrator versus actually having it like coexist inside of a browser experience. And then you start to run into those browser consistencies. So we decided to basically use Cloudinary and you could use any like transformation system, but for us, Cloudinary was the, the one that we like the most and we're most familiar with to transform everything to these PNGs, at least for the, the representation of it. When you are on IconDoc and you download something, you're always downloading vectors. So you have the source file itself and you can do whatever you want with that. But for the presentation of IconDuck, it, it just made sense to use PNGs because it made our life easier. And it just, it was, it allowed us to kind of get out the gate without having to like navigate all of these SVG kind of inconsistencies. Yeah. That, that, that. All right, that was a long explanation for you. No, that, that really helps, I think. Because I, I have talked to designers who, you know, work in this illustrator. Like, I, I'm always going to use SVGs. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever you say. But, you know, you are going to, there are, the browser's always there to get yeah. right. And I mean, if you control the environment, I know some people will use SVGs because they design mockups in Figma or Sketch. And like, that's totally fine because your output 
doesn't actually need to work in a real world application, right? It's just for the aesthetics and the presentation. But when you actually get to this place of like, okay, I want to actually put this image out there. So every single device renders it the same way you run into, you run into issues with vectors. Like it's just, it's just the nature of it. I like, I wish that, and I think as time goes on, browsers have been getting better and better at like interpreting, okay, this vector might be missing this attribute, but we kind of know what it's trying to say. But I think for a little while yet, we're going to be dealing with those inconsistencies. So just to throw it out there, I hope this is an easy question. How do you convert a SVG to a PNG in Cloudinary? Sure. So I, I can show you my screen. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, like, you know, you can, you can start with very simple transformation, which is, you know, you've got this file on S3. And then you just want to like put Cloudinary in front of it and say, okay, I want a PNG of this size first then these edge cases start to creep in. So like here's icon dot, right? And what you're looking at is just an icon of a frog face. And this itself source for this is an SVG file. And it's from the, it's, this one's actually a Firefox Mozilla open source emoji. And so it's like very simple. You're looking at a rendered PNG of a frog. And so if I actually show you the code that renders that, I'm, I'm a PHP developer, LAMP developer. So this is generally what I use. You could also, I think, use the JavaScript SDK to render these URLs, but I can walk you through kind of the process that we have for rendering that URL. And so what you're going to see here is every single vector has a size attribute. And the size in this case might be 500 by 500, 600 by 600. It's not per se the width or height because vectors scale infinitely. So you don't have to be confined by that. So the first thing we do is we have this transformation array. And it basically starts to define all these different transformations. So the first thing we want to do is we want to say, okay, let's take that vector and let's resize it to something that's bigger than what it is. Because it's a vector, we never have to worry about losing quality. So we first say, set the width to be about 20% bigger than what it is and set the height to be 20% bigger than what it is. The next thing we do is we convert it to a PNG. Right. That's kind of the first thing we will go ahead. Sorry. Light 102. So that's, that's where you actually go flip it from SVG. Exactly. PNG. Yeah. So that's, that's, where, that's where the conversion happened. But then it, then all the edge cases start to come in. Right. And so one edge case might be, yeah, you've blown it up, but you don't want to show any extraneous white space because vector and SVG designers, sometimes they purposely add white space because for them, it's about the contrast and the composition of the vector. In my case, I didn't want any white space because I wanted to just be able to control the, the bounding box itself. So at that point, what I want to do is you're going to see this trim call here. I basically want to trim all the white space. Before that, what I also need to do is I need to, to apply this transparent colorizing thing. And this, this looks very strange, right? Because basically what I'm doing is I'm telling Cloud Mary, hey, add black on top of the image but basically don't show any of it, right? So you see- That's really interesting. It's really weird. I know it's really weird. And then you also see this colorize zero. So zero basically tells me like, what's the strength of the color that I want to apply. And the color in this case is black. Well, what that allows you to do is vectors have this really weird kind of quirk where even though like you might not be able to see a trans, like a transparent little, like, like let's say a vector designer puts in a circle, but the circle's invisible. You can't actually see it with your eyes. What this does is it kind of tricks this new PNG that's been converted into like removing any extraneous kind of like artifacts. 
right? Because it basically just like applies, I'm trying to think of like a, a real world analogy, but it just kind of applies a coat on top of it that you can't really see, but that kind of clears out these kind of weird little artifacts that might exist inside of this render. I feel like we, we just learned a trade secret here. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be very complimentary here. I discovered this through Cloudinary support. Okay. I was going back and forth with you guys. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, I don't see anything. And the person was like, okay, there are different tricks you can basically do, but they're like, our, our rendering engine, you don't see it, but it's there. And if you apply this kind of layer on top of it, it's going to basically reset things. Wow. So at that point, I know it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funky, isn't it? At that point, then what I wanted to do is I wanted to also make sure that there was a bit of space around it, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to apply a trim on something that has a white box around it. So if you have a white box with a black vector in the middle, well, the designer in that case is purposely choosing to put a white box on it. And if you apply a trim to that, you're going to get rid of that white box. Even, and in those cases, that white box might be core to the composition of the vector. So we add a bit of padding around it before the trim happens so that you're never removing anything that is vital to the presentation of the vector. So, you know, it, it, it gets kind of, these are where the edge cases. I didn't really notice this when I was like browsing through thousands of icons. And every now and then I'd be like, wait, why does that one look funky? And I'm like, oh, that the designer purposely put white around it to contrast the stroke of the vector. What? So that's what this one is doing. Then we apply the trim. And then we basically say, okay, the size, which is 500 by 500, I want that maximum size. So even if the vector is a two by one ratio, 200 pixels wide by 100 uh, tall, in this case, by using this last transformation, and let's say the value is 500, it just makes sure that the maximum width or height is going to be that 500 number. So in that case, it would be a 500 by 250 because the ratio is two more. Wow, I would love to to show this off in training. This is really yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Again, like I said, you guys helped me. Like, I was going out <laughs> for weeks, and then this this customer support went to the engineers. I was like, hey, why is this happening? So it was, you know, your your team certainly knows about this trick. And I mean, just to to kind of go back one step before this is there's this process whereby we have to clean vectors, and what the cleaning of a vector allows us to do is. There's all these open source cleaners. It, it's funny. Let's say you have a bunch of JSON or HTML, but there's like random white spaces scattered around and it makes it really hard for you to read it, right? An SVG cleaner works in the same way. It allows you to pass a vector through this. Normally it's like a Ruby or a bash script or a C++ script. You pass the vector in, it's going to get rid of all the cruft, HTML comments, title tags, make sure the spacing is properly formatted and we always do that before we pass it to Cloudinary because then Cloudinary gets a vector that is going to be kind of the cleanest version because otherwise you do run into more artifact issues with vectors. So before we pass it to Cloudinary, we clean the vector through these open source libraries and then we pass it into you guys and, and you give us back the PHG. Is, is that your implode command? So the implode actually just connect and change together all the transformations, uh, but the cleaning, I believe I have a, a here, like you can see, I'm using the clean of the specter. Okay. Got it. So it's pretty, pretty involved just to get a vector to look consistently in browsers. I mean, and that's always the promise, right? Like when you start a project and you're thinking, is this really worth it? And you start doing it and you realize how much work it is like, oh, cool. So the stuff I'm doing, other people would have to spend 
dozens or hundreds of hours just doing. So there's kind of that like nice feeling of carrying that, yeah. uh, extracting that out, right? Well, do you want to go like just just for anybody that hasn't been to Iconduct yet? Yeah, sure. because, like let's go to the homepage and just run a search and well, just even the homepage. I think it's a very very elegant looking site, like very nice. Yeah, just grid skills are are the greatest, but no, <laughs> no, it looks really good. And I mean, just the fact that you see them presented as you know PNGs with the yeah. you know the transparent background. But then you actually get delivered SVG. And what we do is actually we're using Cloudinary in these cases to render a, a, a PAGs that's three times the size of what I'm seeing on my monitor. And that's because some of the new phones have three times pixel density. And so but that's are, yeah. So like I'm on a retina machine. And so naturally you do 2x, but now these some of the new Samsungs and iPhones, I think, have 3x density. And so then if I do a search for Let's say frog. I'm on frog. And so now in searching, you've also had to do some analysis and tagging, and yeah, a big part of this too. So the, the process for so like I can walk you through the process. So one of the things at the beginning was I just collected a spreadsheet of all these different GitHub repos. I said, okay, here icon set called Tabler. It's font awesome. There's Google Material Design. There's all these kinds of repos out there. So I created a spreadsheet where I just collected all of them. And every Sunday I go through and I pick one of these repos. It's kind of my Sunday project. I do everything. <laughs> and I download all the vectors to my local machine. And I have a build script. And the build script will basically loop through the directory and find all the vectors that exist inside of this open source repo. And will take the file name of the file. So let's say it, the, the file name is just frog.svg. The, the challenge we have there is like, okay, that works really well if you type in frog into the search. What happens if you type in frogs, plural? We type in like reptile. Naturally, that's not located anywhere. So like in within the file name. So like, how are we going to plot that piece in? And so I created a, I'm really, I'm a big fan of Google spreadsheets because I like abstracting things out of the code base. So I created this spreadsheet and as you can see here, it's just called tag collections. And I heard the word dynamic in the name just to like remind me when I'm looking at this file, that this is pulled into code. And so every time I run this build script, what I do is I basically request this spreadsheet as a CSV and I look through every single row and I'd say, Hey, is the word frog in here? And if the word frog isn't here, I really hope it is for the case of demo. <laughs> see here. Come on, frog. If it's not, I'll, I'm going to add it. And, and yeah, perfect opportunity. Okay. So what I would do in this case, I was like, okay, I know that this open source library has a bunch of animals and like reptiles in it. So what I would do is I'd add the word frog and I would say, okay, there's this column called live as in should this tag be represented in the search. So I'd put in one. And then I have another one called wildcard. And what wildcard does is it allows me to say, hey, what if this word has S-F-R-O-G-T in it, right? Should it be considered, should that catch it? And so for the sake of this, I'll no. And so then I have all these columns, tag one, tag two, tag three. And I would basically just put in a bunch of rep swamp animal, all these little tags. And so when the compile script runs, it'll pull in the file. It'll cross-reference the file name, and if it finds it, it'll consider that tag, and it'll put that into our database. And at that point, we actually use a third-party company called TypeSense, who's very generously sponsoring iConduct. 
And it's kind of like akin to Algolia. So Algolia has kind of this platform where you pump in your database and it'll give you really fast, quick, relevant results. TypeSense is something like that. The only difference is they have an open source hosted version and then they have a paid version as well. And so when we run this build script, we compile all the tags, we send those over to TypeSense. And then when someone does a search, TypeSense is actually powering that. So we didn't have to build the search kind of out. Great. Yeah. yeah. You're pulling now from like on the, on the homepage, you're showing a bunch of different sets where you, that you've gathered from, but your search brings you back a collection that pulls from across all those sets. Exactly. Yeah. So the, there's a kind of two paradigms, right? There's like the paradigm of vector and that's kind of an object and it has things like tags. It has things like what the set is from. And then there's the set itself. And that's the Sunday task. Every Sunday I go find a new set that I want to include. Some of them are our 45 vectors. Some of them are 4,500 vectors. There's like ton of range. And the goal for me, like, you know, everyone knows about Google material design. Everybody knows about font. Awesome. These are kind of mainstays of the developer community. The part that I really love is when I find like a deviant art vector set that has like 40 people like start it because those are vectors I would never have found. So I just like the idea of like finding these vectors that are kind of hidden away. Like a treasure hunt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I found one two weeks ago or three weeks ago, and I thought it was just so clever. It was, it's this one year pixel art, oops, it is, it's pixel arts icon set. And it's, you know, I think the GitHub doesn't have many stars, but basically what this person did was they just took all of these conventional icons and turned it into like that eight bit kind of vector feel. And I just thought it was really cool. Like it was just like a, a different one. And on every page I list like what the license is. So. You can use it for personal commercial purposes. And then I always look, try to link back to the GitHub repo and the, the designer's website. Yeah, it's it's a really nice, I mean, it's almost like a good template for curation because you've got a license, you've got the source, you've got yeah. ability to pull together different, you know, from different sets, you know, and see them together. So, yeah. Me and Becky, we work in training, we work in instructional design. So we, we use a lot of icons <laughs> in our trainings. One thing that I've noticed looking at all the different icon sites, for the most part, they don't really focus on their APIs or if they, if they may not even have an API in this case. But like if you scroll down, taking a look at some of your icon sets, you have very clear ways for you to be working with the endpoints. I mean, obviously you're a developer, so maybe it was something where you're like, well, that's something that I would have used. But, but what's the reasoning for this? And are you actually seeing people use this? So... Uh, I mean, like going back again, that uh, one of the challenges, like all of these little icon sets were like completely silent, right? So creating icon.com as a website obviously allows people to discover icons they may not have found. But exactly what you said, like, since I'm a developer, I always think through like, okay, well, how do I plug this into whatever I'm building? Because a designer who is looking for an icon often will just need it for Figma or Photoshop or sketch kind of design. And so for them, there's not that like, you know, they often want to find one icon set and have things be branded consistently. But for developers, we, we kind of, yeah, like we're always looking at ways of like abstracting things or integrating things because we kind of live in code rather than on the presentation side. So the intention was very much, you know, if this is something that Stencil would use and I would want an API for it, why don't I build that kind of from that point of view? So, you know, how some people, at least two years ago, there was always that kind of adage responsive first, design your app or your website to be responsive and have that be kind of your first approach. I tried to have a similar approach, like design it from an API first. 
So the entire, like, even when you're up here and you click this load more button, this is just triggering my own API, right? It's just making an API call to itself and then loading in the icons. And inside of the API response, there's everything you need to know who the designer is, what the license is, links to the license. If you want to present this inside of your app and inform your users of how those icons could be used. But yeah, I think it was just very much if I would want to that API and trying to make this like kind of be a, like a long lasting project where developers rely on it, I really wanted to have, yeah, have it be reliable, not just like a website you have to visit, but have it something you could integrate. Yeah, there is some. Yeah. Um, Sorry, there is one more thing I wanted to show you. Um, yeah. So one of the things I found, this is a very like nerd, like a responsive UI kind of nerdy thing. But one of the challenges I found was when you do a search and I, I'm surprised I didn't really discover how people did this before. It's like, let's say you do a search for love and I'm showing by default 10 icons per row, right? Um, but as you make your screen a bit smaller, you're going to see, you know, it becomes nine, it becomes eight. It becomes seven, um, very like made like out, like common sense things to do for responsive, uh, responsive UIs. But the problem I ran into was, um, what happens to the end of the row before you've loaded more, right? Because when the page loaded, there were, I believe, let's say an even number 10 by 10, so hundred icons, but all of a sudden the number of rows becomes seven. And so now you want to hide these things, but I didn't want to use JavaScript or PHP to start dynamically changing what gets shown and what gets hidden. So I wrote this, this is me kind of really proud of the CSS I wrote, uh, <laughs> I this really complicated CSS file. And it basically in CSS, there's this concept of orphans or widows, very, very morbid. I, know, I know, neither did I before I started doing it, but the idea is what happens if you load you know, in this case, it's 10 by 10, right? So it's an even hundred. But if all of a sudden the number goes down to nine or goes up to 11, you're going to have these little icons. They're just sitting there waiting for someone to click the load more button so that more come in. And those are called widows or orphans. So I wrote this really complicated CSS file that basically says whenever there's a widow or orphan based on these different like widths and these different column sizes and column uh, values, show, show or don't show those widows. And that just allows a user to never kind of see one sitting by itself. And then, so I put myself in that, in that shoe, right? Like, I'm like, if I see one there and I don't even notice the load war button. My assumption is there, this is the end, right? Like we have this subconscious feeling of like, if I see a full row, there might be more, but if I see less than a full row, it implies that I'm at the end. So I wrote this, this gist file that basically goes through all these different kind of breakpoints and says, okay. If this is dead, nine columns thing, cut out the last eight. You know, if it's a seven column thing, cut out the last six kind of thing. That way the user is always going to see a really consistent UI, regardless of if they're on their phone, if they're on a tablet, if they're on a smaller monitor, and that they're never going to be confused as to whether or not there's more icons that can be clicked. Yeah, so that's a really good UX insight there that if you have more, you should fill out what you have, you know, that Raleigh's going to see that if, if it's not full, there's probably no more. I couldn't believe that. I, I like even just searching, you search Stack Overflow, you search on Google, but there's this old adage of like, if you're on the second page of Google, you probably didn't put in the right search term, right? Like that's how good Google is. Generally, it's really good at inferring and, and they're, they're kind of raking algorithms. And for the life of me, I couldn't find out how to do this using just pure CSS. There's 
you know, there's server-side rendering things where you can use yeah. the, mod, the mod operator to cut out things. But when it comes to responsive, it, I just wanted to just use pure CSS so that there's no like kind of calculation going on. So it was tough. I'm really proud of it. I put it as a gist. So far, I have your comments uh, <laughs> one day. Okay, that's really cool. And yeah. the fact that you're sharing it, that kind of brings me to another point is that what prompted you to get into open source? Because you've been very successful with a business, you know, based on on similar ideas and overall concepts. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this before the call and I was even like, I was trying to think like, how do I put this into words? And obviously there's the, you know, there's the whole, my career, you know, went as it did because of reliance on open source, right? Like running PHP or running Apache or running Ubuntu server that, you know, runs my business stencil. Those are all open source initiatives that were like started decades ago. And, and so there's that aspect of it, but then I, you know, like, so there's the giving back point of view, but the other side of it is I also found it's very effective for abstraction, right? So like if I write, uh, let's say I write some sort of PHP library that allows me to send emails. If I have this one project and I deeply couple the email logic into the app that I built. And then, you know, a few months go by or a few years go by, and now I want to recreate that. One of the challenges I had when I was younger in my career was like, okay, I'd have to go and kind of break it away. I'd have to be like, okay, like, let's take all these intermingled pieces for project A. And like, it was really tedious to like pull that into to project B. So I got really into the habit of open sourcing as many like siloed abstracted pieces as I could into GitHub repos or open source repos. And I rely really heavily on sub-modules. And so every project I run, so when I when I started iConduct, I basically added 10 to 15 sub-modules from other projects I built and just compiled them into iConduct. And all of a sudden I had an ORM for access to the database. I had a caching layer that I could just throw all my data through, for example, this Google spreadsheet tags, right? Like the last thing you want to end with every single page load, be going to Google Sheets and hitting up the API. So you naturally need to put a, a caching layer in front of it. And I like, I got really frustrated at rebuilding things over and over and over again. So there's the like altruistic angle right. back to the community. But the other side of it is it just made me much more efficient when I was working on multiple projects. And it also forced me to think more about when I was building. Right. If you're like, I'm just going to plug in this little email thing. Well, you don't really, like, I wouldn't think too far down the line of like, should the subject be def like definable? Should the outbound sender be definable? So when I started to open source things or looked at that things through lens of open sources, it forced me to think through the details of what I'm actually trying to do. And that down the line, like initially it's a bit more upfront work, but down the line, it just saved me tons of time. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a really neat way to think of it too, because I think it's kind of how we like think about things too. Is like you know we we get a little idea and then we get another idea and then if we yeah. can sort of like connect them and save us a lot of time, we don't really yeah. want to reinvent anything. So there, there was yeah. uh, early in my career, one thing I heard it was a really great manager of mine I had, and he taught me about the Unix philosophy, and I, I hadn't really heard it, and he was explaining it to me like you know you'd have the terminal open, and you'd be like okay. CD is just a program, like when you change directories or RM is a program and he, the pipe operator was this thing that changed everything together. Oh, this is a perfect segue for cloud engineering. What it was, was you could say like LS, which would list the directory contents. And then you put in a pipe and be like, okay, what do you want to do with the output of that? And he taught me about this idea of what the Unix philosophy was 
and I really hope I'm getting this right, is all of these really tiny, tiny programs. And you don't want them to be too complicated because the more complicated they get, the more difficult it becomes to maintain. So if you design all of these tiny little software pieces and you chain them together, it makes it easier for developers and easier to maintain. And so the submodule and open source approach for me professionally is very akin to that. And with Cloudinary, I swear this wasn't, this wasn't planned. The transformation is exactly that kind of concept, right? Like, it's not like I'm saying in one line, I want you to resize it to this with the PNG, with the color transparency on top, then pad it and then trim it. I'm basically just chaining together these very minute kind of operations. And so as a developer, that makes, that makes it easier for me to look at one line and be like, okay, what's happening here? And this one is like obvious format PNG. Like I don't, I don't have to understand everything at once. I can just kind of piece it together. When it comes to sequencing, you, you can count on that thing's going to get yeah. done and then this thing's going to happen. And that for a programmer, that is very reassuring, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's hard to hold tons of different things in your head, but if it is sequenced or operationalized or trans like transformation based, yeah, you, you can kind of like go of holding a, a really abstract concept and just look at it like, like line by line by line, right? Yep. It's yeah. Now, Oliver, one thing that I think that you did was really cool. And I think it's something where if I was a developer and I was building a project like this, that is open source that we ultimately want to get some details on like, Hey, I have this MVP or I have this concept or I have this idea. What do you guys think about it? I saw that you went over to Reddit. I saw that you went to Hacker News. You dropped all this in there to just get feedback from the community. It is something that I feel like probably more developers should do is find ways to share and get input quickly as you're coming up with the concept and having it where they can physically touch it. Yeah, so the concept with Iconduct, it had been in my head for a long time just because I, I, I know that icon world so well, so well, and I just kind of saw a bit of a gap. And I'd say it was probably sometime in November, mid-November of 2020, when I started to like tinker with things. And I finally like, you know, scratched around enough time by mid-January, early January to like get an MVP out. And at that point, you know, even, even now, icon duck is a very simple premise. There's a home page, there's a set page, and there's an icon page, and the icon page lets you download it. So as an MVP, it's, it's, it's still relatively slim. And what I realized, I just didn't want to go too far down that rabbit hole if there wasn't more demand. So I, I wrote a piece for the subreddit open source where I basically just put this project out there and I wanted feedback and it was, it did pretty well. And I'm, I'm pretty active with comments. I've always had this like ethos of like, if someone's commenting on what I do, I want to reply and acknowledge it. So. So with Reddit, I like, I just was commenting nonstop with people's questions and people were really great. They were like, okay, can you include this library? Or like, can you add the option search by set, not just like across the site, but like, I just, you know, the Google material design is 4,500 vectors. I just want to search that. So the feedback was really helpful there. Can I duplicate it? I did that on Hacker News, I believe mid January. And I wrote an article on dev.to just kind of about my stack. And the stack was just kind of like, this is how the server side works. This is how I'm doing the image transformations. Um, this is how I'm, you know, this CDN I'm using for CSS files. So yeah, I, I was pretty surprised by the feedback, like the Hacker News one, maybe that was the first one I, I posted it. And I mean, Hacker News is very fickle, you know, and you, you don't have the right title or the right time or the right day of the week or some other news came out that day and that's it. It just doesn't take. And so I posted it and I went out for a coffee for like 45 minutes 
And then I came back and it was at like 150 uploads. And by the end of the day, it got to like 650. So it was at the top uploaded project of the day, but I didn't expect it. And I thought it was just really fascinating people's demand or like demand, people's interest in, in something like this. I, I was really surprised by it. And I mean, I mean, it's always a nice sign where like a project you've done kind of gets some light and it feels seen. So it was, uh, yeah, I got, I've been pretty active with Reddit's open source community, Hacker News. Uh, Dev.to was new to me, but I also just thought it, it felt a bit cathartic. Like I built this thing. It's very easy to just build something and then like, especially as a developer, like move on to the thing that pays you your income or something. <laughs> and so like, I tried to force myself, like, no, I, like I worked on this on the side for a couple of months, like take the time to at least put it out there. And every now and then, every, every few days, it'll get really big in some random country. So it was really popular in Saudi Arabia in mid-February because the person who's the biggest Google developer advocate in Saudi Arabia tweeted it. Right. So there was like a huge option for the radio. And then three or four days ago, it got really big in France because for a similar story, a really well-known developer in France tweeted about it and, and all of a sudden the traffic spiked. So it was, I'm really glad I posted it on Reddit at Hacker News because that kind of kickstarted the, the visibility. And every now and then somebody will discover it, tweet it out, and I kind of get this new kind of traffic source and a lot of people writing blog posts about it. So it's, it's been really... Yeah, it's a good reminder. Like, even if you think the project is very early in its stages or maybe that VP isn't that robust, just putting out there, that was like a good reminder. Well, I know when I when I went out to the repo for your site that yep. what I saw was you're looking for help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's a good, I mean, I'm, you know, for a lot of developers, this would be a fantastic project to get involved in. You know what's so funny about this? It has 14 stars. I just thought it was funny that people were starring a help wanted <laughs> repo, right? Like at first I thought I would put it on icon.com, but the eventual goal is to have as much of this be open source as possible. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to throw it up on GitHub itself. I felt like it was kind of meta in that sense. And I also just like, like the link putting help, but yeah, I mean, the goal you know, with icon doc was just to kind of fill that need that I saw. But one of the challenges I had was like, okay, like I, I obviously only have so many hours in the day and I have a full-time job and business that I run. So my goal was very much to find the people who could spend a few hours a week, just, you know, like even small things every week I add a new repo. And so I want someone to like find the designer and tweet it out at them and make sure they're acknowledged and like, you know, post little graphics of different vectors and stuff like that. Uh, and then I spoke with a developer who was interested in designing like a native app. And so because I have the API, he's kind of like gone away and he's like working on building a native app that would be downloaded using Electron, which I think is a cool. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it was like the, the API really helped me out there because I'm like, oh, great. I don't have to hold your hand. I just have to generate a key for you and you can go off and you can design whatever UI you want. You can kind of pull this in. And then I even have this thing called the researchers. And one of the things I found is as time goes on, you know, there's 135 different, 140 different icon sets. It's getting hard to find the more obscure ones, right? It's easy to like, what I would do is I would go to GitHub search, you know, choose the license and then do a search for icon. And you're always going to get the ones that have 10,000 stars, 4,000 stars. I want to find the ones that have like five stars. Right. The ones that kind of have been abandoned, they have a, like a generous license, but those are the ones that I want on icon the most because they're the ones I'm not going to find and developers are going to find because they're not as visible. 
So I actually have this researcher call out here. I was like, I just want you to search the internet for open source like repos that are like have almost no visibility so that over time it'll become like the place. Because one crazy case I found one set in November, it's not online anymore. It was like on a, a personal site. They had a CC0 license, which means you can do whatever you want with it. And the site went down. And it hasn't been up since. And I was like, well, really happy. I downloaded the icons to put them in. Like, well, that before that happened, right? Because there's that like archive.org-esque feeling of as time goes on, these repos are going to become abandoned and people are going to move on with their careers. So I really want Iconduct to just be this like repo of open source stuff that as time goes on, will just be around, right? Yeah. I, you know, I almost think that even like maybe a designer starting out who had created some icons might want to be able to just share them with you directly. You yeah. know? I mean, it, you know, there was a, there was a tweet maybe a month ago and it was like a good sign. It was like, they tweeted at me to include, it was the, the pixel art person. Oh, but okay. That means yeah. like, can you include my icons? And his, like I said, his repo had very little, so I wouldn't have discovered those. So it was a cool like flip where it was like now someone who had wanted a bit more visibility and wanted to have their site, their icons represented elsewhere was like reaching out. That was that yeah. nice like. Yeah. I'm kind of looking at icons like topography, you know, they're becoming a way of communicating. Yeah. And and I think we talked about this a little, you know, culturally, globally, yeah. they they can express things that we all understand a lot quicker, maybe. It was about a week ago, Google came out. So Google has their fonts.google.com, which is a repo of all the open source fonts you can use, right? And they came out with a, I believe it's 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 under the fonts brand but it allows you to search through all of their material design icons. And there was an interesting discussion on Hacker News about accessibility issues when it comes to icons, right? So like for a long time, there was a push to make experiences more accessible. And one of the conventional ways to do that is to use copy, to use text so that people who are using screen readers will actually read out what the thing did, right? And so some of the feedback was the, the philosophy of fundamentals of icons is sort of starting to get lost where we're trying to express too much through the iconography and we're kind of like not doing enough to make sure things are accessible. So there's always that like balance of, you know, you want to, you don't want to over communicate like the word, like lock it out or create over and over and over again, when you can just show an icon that represents that action, but then how do you bridge the whole accessibility thing? And so there, there are people who like try really hard to like use iconography as progressive enhancement for people who are using accessibility devices so that you get both. I think that's it. That's a good. Well, I've seen it and I've heard people echo because otherwise you go too far and everything is represented in visuals. And then somebody who doesn't have great vision or has vision impairment issues can't use this interface, right? Like, because it, that's one of the challenges that you have with vectors is you can, if you do the alti do the title approach, depending on what the screen reader is, it's going to be different, but most screen readers are obviously at this point, just know enough to represent an alt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that until I was reading the discussion. I was like, oh, right. And there are the accessibility issues. So it was Hacker News can, can have some pretty good, insightful conversation sometimes. It was nice. That's good. So you've done a lot. You understand a lot of different things when it comes to working with icons, it comes to developing this project, working with open source. If you're talking to a developer and we're saying, hey, I want to start working on a way to develop this next open source project or this maybe start working with icons, there's a lot that you can ultimately probably focus on. But what are some of the, like the main learnings from this project that you would say are like 
things that are probably applicable for our overall developer audience? Yeah, I mean, I always think it's a good sign. It's going to sound kind of uh, cliche, but it's like a good sign when I look back and I wouldn't have done it because it was too much work. And I was surprised at how much work Icon Depth was because because of like all those things I mentioned, SVG cleaning, artifacts not rendering properly, Safari rendering a vector different than Chrome or Firefox. So like I purposely like limited myself. I was like, okay, I'm not going to let people download a PNG. I'm not going to let them define the size of the downloaded file because I needed to limit, I needed to set some limitations and restrictions on myself. Becky and I actually talked about this at one point where I would say like people that think myself included earlier in my career would get hung up on what stack are they going to use? Are they going to use this like new approach to rendering pages dynamically or are they going to, you know, put it all in CDN? So, I mean, advice wise, this is very much talking to myself, use what, use what you know. Like I already had an EC2 server up and running for some other projects. I already have elastic cache and a load balancer, and I already know how to use Cloudflare for caching. So for me, I always just try to like focus on what is the like, pro- like proposition or prospect of like what I'm building, right? The value prop, and then put aside anything that's going to get in a way for me to test it. Right. So like, I don't want to focus on some new technology. I don't want to have to spin up servers and provision them. I just want to kind of like get out the door. So again, that for me, just like figure out what my value is that I want to test the hypothesis on. And then the rest of the stuff is just implementation details. Use whatever you're most comfortable with. Like I remember when Node first came out, I was working at um, an agency back in 2011. And I remember there was like a d- development agency. I remember there was a, a big push to use this new technology by the client and there, it was early. I mean, that was early. And that was real early. <laughs> it was like 0.6 version something like that. Right. And like, what happens is like, you know, something that would have taken me two weeks and it had taken two months because you're rebuilding everything from scratch. They don't know that at that point had a lot of trouble with rendering or interpreting cookies across different subdomains. I just remember. It was fine. It was an interesting learning experience. I learned Node pretty well at the time, but you know, any project, like it's one thing if you're getting paid to learn that kind of technology. It's another thing if it's your time and your side project and your like interests, I would say just do whatever is going to let you kind of get out the door so that you can at least test it. Because otherwise you can lose weeks and months just on like putting together all these pieces because it's, it's a new technology. Yeah. Like it's just whenever it's going to help you get out the door as fast as possible to like to actually it, it gets feedback from people because developers like it's a weird thing we live in our head because we can control all of the kind of pieces of the puzzle so you're like well oh, i could do this or i could do that but at the end of the day if if no one finds what you're building useful or interesting it, it, it can it can hurt it can be like i spent two months and i built this thing and nobody cares but like if you had just done three weeks instead and gotten feedback you could have spent the remaining six weeks or whatever it is seven weeks to like build the usable version of that so that's very much talking to myself. Yeah. No, it's good advice. I think the, the thing that I, I heard right away where I was like, yep, I, I get it. It makes perfect sense is when you said value proposition right. is that we have had developers on the show where we're saying, you know, their value proposition was to learn this new technology. So they, 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 they recreated their entire blog or they developed a portfolio that allowed them to learn the technology. But in your case, it wasn't to learn the new stack. It was to get people to use this open source project. So it's like, yeah, you should fall back on your knowledge base. And 
And as me and Becky say to each other sometimes, double down on your strengths. You know this is something that you are good at, so continue to build with what you know. So I think it, it all comes down to what's your goal? What's the value proposition? So I, I, I think it's amazing advice. I think it's something where you're, you're right, that sometimes developers do get stuck more on the technical details of the stack rather than My saying, but what, 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 what am I building this for? And I, I like that. I like that a lot. That's a great point. I probably, you know, I, I wanted to really learn a bit more about machine learning. And so with Stencil, we played with this idea of using Google's APIs and the different thresholds. And to be honest, we probably didn't need to, but I had that interest. So I coupled that in to what we were building and kind of did a bit of calculations. And okay, it's going to add maybe three or four days of dev, but I also wanted to understand it a, a bit more directly rather than abstractly. And so, yeah, that's a great point. Like in that case, it wasn't just the feature we were building. It was like, I wanted to progress my career and have a better understanding. So in that case, it didn't meet the value problem. Yeah, value probably always has this commercial, economic. Right. <laughs> Capitalist. <laughs> that is, that, that is the, the value, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great point. I just had one other thing. Oh, so the other thing that I found is going back on like double down on your strengths. This kind of comes back to the beginning of the conversation of our challenge with Stencil was building up image rendering servers, which we didn't want to do. And so one of the things I've gotten really good at in my career is not doing things over and over again. So I have an EC2 server. It's always sitting there on AWS. I'm going to use that for projects and I'm not going to get too hung up on things. Cloudinary is another example. So my partner, Adam and I, we're working on a new app right now, and it's a very heavily email-based app. So like we send emails to users. And one of the things we wanted to do was let people just like customize aspects of this email. So we have vector images in there and, and they can choose the color of these vectors and stuff. But naturally emails is antiquated as it gets these days. And so we have to render a PNG with like these kind of different colors. So Cloudinary is going to power the icons in these emails so that the, the, the people can choose what colors they are, what size they are. And so for me, a big learning, especially even in the last few years, is like whenever I'm comfortable with the technology and I know it inside out, just put a check mark next to it. So Cloudinary, I know is going to be the thing I use for image transformation. EC2 and AWS, like sure, maybe Google or Azure are cheaper or have like cool new technologies, but like I'm comfortable with this thing and I'm going to be able to just kind of check mark that away. Unless it's that, that example you gave me, which is I want to learn something. But for the most part, I try to like bucket things and say image processing. I know what I'm going to do for search. I'm going to use type sense going forward for email. I use postmark app because I've been using them since 2012, right? I just kind of like put those pieces in and say that that part is solved. You know, I think that is the cloud thinking way too. I mean, you know, the idea that there things are built by experts, customized, optimized, and you can just take advantage of them, you know, and then you can really focus on your idea and just plug these things together. Yeah. And the biggest one that I always try to remember is like, I, I, I love products and companies and services that have been around for like at least five years. You know, because then there's this comfort I always have, like whenever a problem I run into, they'd probably see, right? Like I ran into a problem with Postmark for sending some emails through, through this app and I replied and they're like, oh yeah, we have a help document that walks you through every single like piece of what's going on. And so for me, there's always that comfort of, you know, when a new service comes out, like it's totally fine to use it and get familiar with it. But I always tend to 
leaning towards something that has really strong developer support. So like good documentation, forums are a big one, just because there's this comfort I have of like, I'm not going to be in this on my own. Yeah, that, that's always like a big kind of plus one for me when I know there's strong developer support and they've been around and they have really good documentation. Yeah, it and it, it, I agree with that. It's interesting because like even in cases where when me and Becky are looking at like training software or looking at even just, you know, people like complimentary services that are in our spaces, the ones that have had a little bit of time to be in the trenches, learn what their customers' needs are, they typically do things right and their documentation is that much better for it. So, I mean, if you think about like the, the companies with the best documentation out there, I mean, Funnery aside, but like something like Stripe, as an example, yeah. they have amazing documentation, but it, it, it took years to be able to get where they are. So I agree with what you're saying is it has to be seasoned a little bit to be able to be adoptable into your cloud stack or list of things that you typically are looking at. I, I agree with that. It's just a funny thing. Now, I, I, I'm going through because we're building this new product and it's an API. And so like I now have the challenge of communicating that documentation. And I watched this amazing video about a man, I believe he, he ran uh, Python conferences around the world. And he, I, he basically was talking about the foundations of documentation and how the different pieces, you know, there's tutorials and those are different than walkthroughs and that's different from API references and that's different from this. And I, you know, it's a thing you take for granted when you read something and it's just very clear. It's a reminder of like, oh, right. That there's a process, there's a methodology to writing really clear documentation. And it's, it doesn't just happen accidentally. It's like Stripe or Twilio or Segment or whoever, or Co like Cognitive, any company that has good documentation. It's hard, right? Like until you start writing documentation, because in your head, everything's very obvious, but then you have to put yourself in that empathetic position of people of different like experiences, different personas, different like languages, how you communicate things clearly and not use overly complicated language. It's, it's tough. Yeah. It's really hard. You know, I'll add, to, I'll add to that. These, you know, I agreed on documentation and, and support and forms. I look for places that offer open source because I figure, you know, if they're out there building something and sharing it with the rest of the world for free, that they're pretty confident of what they're doing and they're getting yeah. a lot of feedback and things like yeah. that. I mean, and there's also, I mean, TypeSense, which is what we use for search. I love that they have that model. They have the open source thing yeah. and then they have the paid one. And I, and you know, sometimes I, I'm my cynical comes in and I'm like, well, like, I wonder if that's just Avenue. And then I would jump in there and I'd be like, oh man, they're active. Like someone will post an issue, like the founder, or the CTO will respond within like an hour. I then was a very similar, right? It's like, oh, wow, like when you actually have this open source, but, but I think it's, it's a, there's a, what's the word, a symbiotic relationship, because when you develop really good open source, not only does it help your brand, it also makes your product much better because now you have people doing, and it's actually a good story. One of the first experiences I had with Cloudinary was early on, I, there was a PHP SDK that you guys built. And I wrote a pull request, which I believe your CTO, whose name escapes me right now because this is 2013, but he responded and merged it in. And I was like, one, it felt cool, right? To be seen by a company that you're like, you're very familiar with. But the other side of it was like, you know, it also makes Cloudinary's product better. It makes TypeSense's product better because now you have all these developers who are like catching strange edge case bugs that you just wouldn't have caught because your browser is set to English and not to Chinese or because you're not behind a VPN or all these like little things that yeah. you can't, you know, you can't do everything at the same time. So 
Yeah, it's the same with me. It's always like a big plus one when I land on a site and I see like a GitHub repo, right? I'm like, oh, cool. Like they're, they're trying something to reach out to the community. I always, I always really like that as well. So Oliver, call to action. What do we want? Uh, someone that's watched this episode, they've listened to you talk for like, oh, I want to do something now. What, what do we want them to do? Want them to go check out Icon Doc? What do you want them to do? Oh, in general or just yeah. relative to my projects? <laughs> oh, wait, okay. I, let's start with you, your projects and then maybe get more altruistic after that. I mean, if you were looking for a graphic design software, get stencil.com. More importantly, I mean, like I, I'm, I, you know, I balance a lot of these different things. My prepper and I are building this new API product called Zen Login. And the premise of that is we want to power the suspicious login detection for apps. You know, you get those emails sometimes and it's like, hey, we noticed a new login. Like, was this you? kind of, if not contact support. So we built an API to deliver those emails and show Google maps and kind of give as much context on location data based on when those events happen. And that's the Cloudinary piece of like Cloudinary is powering a bunch of images in there. So we were building this sort of product. What I like, what I want most is if, if people want to help with the, the build process for icons, if they want to help with the marketing, if they want to help with like the research for different repos, if they want to kind of get involved at all in icon that, it's pretty, you know, wild west, like anything that anyone can provide in terms of energy time, building up apps. I, I was talking with one fella and we were talking about building an iOS keyboard, right? Like all of these PNGs and that they scale as much as we want, you know, could we create a little keyboard where it plugs into these open source things and people could share these things. So any, any developer, anyone who wants to help on icon duck, you know, anything you'd want to do would be more than welcome because my time is split somewhat between different projects so yeah help help out if, if you're if you're so inclined yeah i mean yeah i feel i would feel a bit like a buster if i started giving people a little altruistic advice i mean you know <laughs> probably what i said before just like if you're happy with the if you have a value prop don't get too hung up on like the different technologies i think earlier in my career you hear something and you think oh i need to use that now because that's where everybody else is going and you, you there's like this fear of missing out there's this fear of becoming a bit antiquated with your skill sets but you know, I think just enjoy what you're doing. And if you want to learn a new skill set, fine. But if you want to test an idea, yeah, try not to get too focused on like the right way to do it. Because realistically, if it has any lot like legs on it, you're going to rebuild it multiple times anyway over the coming year. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And then when it comes to social media, is there any places where you're particularly active anywhere where if someone just wanted to keep up with what Oliver's doing and the projects that you've mentioned? Is there any particular place you feel like is the best place to follow you at? I, I'm not active on social media. Strange. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> kind of strange considering um, the, the graphic design app. I mean, I do have Twitter. I, I don't personally use it, but I have one for Iconduct. It's I am Iconduct. It's, it's a homage to Iron Man. Um, also, it was the only one I could find. <laughs> um, and so there, I you know, I regularly just kind of like you know, every, every week when I have a new set, I, I tweet that out. I call out the designers, developers, and engage a little bit in the icon scene, which is really fascinating. Like the whole visual kind of scene. There's a lot of people who focus on like really niche things, which I think is cool. Um, so I am icon doc. It's also GitHub is just icon doc, but that's where the help document is. And over time, I want to add more and more repos for all these different integrations. Yep. That's about it. Amazing. Yeah, oh, it's been a pleasure. It, it, yeah, and, absolutely. And as you're working on, you know, Zen Login, and you're working on some of those other projects, of course, we are hopefully going to have you back to talk more yeah. and more about those because, as you're showing, 
there's lots of different ways for people to be thinking about images. And there's lots of different use cases for images between what you're doing with stencil, what you're doing with icon doc, what you're doing with your other projects. So hopefully this is not the last time we get to talk. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it will be. And uh, I'll definitely reach out when uh, I get to showcase some of the Cloudinary icons and all these emails getting sent out. I love it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really good to talk to you. You know, you too. So we talked a lot with Oliver and Oliver had quite a bit to say, not just about Icon Duck, but of course, other projects that he's been involved with. And it's what I like about Oliver is it seems like he never sleeps, <laughs> frankly. I mean, being able to go between Stencil to Icon Duck to this new project he's working on called Zen Longin. He's always developing new, interesting things, which is kind of the whole point of this program is we highlight the innovative, the interesting, the things that really are exciting and of course using cloudinary in some way so we have a tie to it but oliver is exemplifying that he's a developer that really loves developing and building new building fresh so it's where i'm very glad that we got to have this conversation with him i think of him also as a craftsman i mean the way that he describes the work that he's done especially where he showed the gist um, of code where he was able to have everything line up evenly at the bottom of a grid in a load more scenario just and then and then sharing with all of us the css that enables you to do that so if you like that you can take a look at that and i also like the way he he takes time out to explain to everybody the difference between raster and vector files because many people may not know if you don't work with svg then that wouldn't be something that you would know. And he does take that time to do it. Yeah, truly. I mean, I feel like the only people that I've ever met that know what a raster versus a vector file are, they're really people that are in the graphic design side of things. And typically those that are having used programs like Adobe Illustrator, because Adobe Illustrator with AI files and EPS files, those are commonly vector files. So those are the only people that ever make that distinction between raster and vector. But Yes, most definitely a lot of developers, unless they have to deal with that type of file on a regular basis, like an SVG, it's just, it's not something that you have to dive into that much. I mean, sure, there's other people that I think would use vectors. Probably people are like involved with like AutoCAD software, but it's a very different output than what Oliver was able to walk through in this episode. And yeah. knowing how to use these types of files and when it makes sense is something that may not always be readily apparent. So I think it was good to have his breakdown of it. Well, it you know, it's interesting though with icons because they are becoming more of a communication tool, especially for global applications. Like, you know, we all know what that that diamond pointing this way on a video means, play. You know, so it's an easy way to avoid having to write the word play everywhere and translate it. So, so icons are really important. And as developers start needing to include them, they may not have had to think about SVG or, or how they're going to use them, but now they need them and now they can get them for free. So that's really nice. It is. And it's, it was something that we've talked about in a few other cases with not even just this project, but finding good icons. It's not easy. And the fact that he's creating this wonderful repository of repositories in many ways to be able to say, go to this place to find what you need for your project and dedicating every Sunday to finding a new one, as he said in the episode, it, it's a it's an arduous task, but it's also one that is going to benefit, I think, a lot of different people and especially developers. So 
Uh, it makes me happy. It makes me happy that Oliver exists and that he's doing the work that he's doing today. Yeah. And we and I think curation of web assets is becoming more and more popular. And he shares his process. So it's it's really nice if someone is interested in doing that and looking at how it might be done. One thing that did stand out to me, I know that you you had some thoughts about this too, but how when he was talking about being able to manage the metadata and the tags for various assets when he showed like the picture of the frog and he was like, I'm going to go and add frog here and add swamp as a tag and all those different things that he added, but he was doing it all via spreadsheet. And I think that was an interesting mechanism for the development work. I think it's great. I mean, it's a nice, simple approach, low overhead. And now with all the kind of APIs you can do against spreadsheets, why not? You know, it's, it's easy, easy user interface, but still accessible by API. Yeah, and if you think about what that is, like a Google Sheet is is really accessible to anybody. Anybody that has a Google account, which of course that seems to be free too, you can build this. So to be able to build these types of mechanisms, it doesn't take a lot of overhead. It's not like you're having to buy yeah. some expensive software or learn this new thing. Most people have touched a spreadsheet once or twice in their life. So I think a lot of the things that he was doing, they were smart, but they also were very like it's not just smart, it was where it helped to fit the budget and the scope of the program. So it definitely shows he's thinking about this from a business sense when he's doing things like that, rather than just saying like, I'm gonna develop this and maybe some of the things I'm doing aren't gonna be sustainable or may ultimately cost me more in terms of overhead or time spent. So I liked this type of work, like finding the right mechanism for what you need it for. And the spreadsheet in that case worked out nicely. Yeah, that's a really good point that the resources required don't go over the budget of what you're delivering. So that's, it's really smart. Yeah, especially with an open source project like this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you're not yeah. doing it to make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the web has always been, had a lot of free aspects to it. So it's nice to keep that alive. I think the other thing that I found that I, I was very happy to hear, and of course our support team will be happy to hear it too, is that he, a lot of those really cool practices that he talked about with using the colorize transformations and being able to do certain things in a workflow with the way that he set up the transformation sets for his SVGs to display them as PNGs the right way on a site. He got that from our support team. It wasn't like he came up with this by himself. And that's not to say like every time you need something, you should ask for support, but there are companies like ourselves that have been around for a little bit. And so we have had probably every scenario thrown at our support team. And there are times where we can pull this out and make it applicable. So I think don't feel like you can't ask for support, not just from Cloudinary, but just any company that you're doing work with. And it might be where you find the answer quicker and faster. And yes, you might have to talk to somebody, but ultimately you might get what you want out of it comparing to have to spend hours buried in documentation or reading forum posts on Stack Overflow. It might just give you the, the right answer right away. Yeah, definitely. And it doesn't matter what level of development you're working in. Oliver is a person who, who has his own company and he's, you know, a skilled engineer. He asks for support, you know, so it's out there. You should just take advantage of it. And I think the last thing that I, I loved about what he did was just the fact that it was very focused on, yes, the, the final output for a lot of this content is the SVG for what you download. But to say like, I can't display them as SVGs this way, or it doesn't make sense. 
he didn't see that as a restriction. He knew he could be able to change the formats and make it so that way for the web output, he was going to do this as a PNG. Or in that case, he could have even chose a different file format. But don't feel restricted to say like, if something is one format and you're, you're having to work with it, be ready to say, that's not a deal breaker. I can change it to a different format or do something else with that and then be able to expand on the project. So file format should never be the end or a reason to stop. It should always be just a chance for you to question why and pivot. Yeah, well, it's nice because you know, if it's easier to lay out with PNGs, then that's what you should use, if that's going to make a better layout. And the nice thing about Cloudinary is your original asset might be an SVG, but you can use PNG with a simple transformation. So, you know, you don't have to be restricted. It, it's one of those things where we could go on and on about this episode because <laughs> I think there's so many nice things that Oliver's doing. I think the, the projects that he has done, Stencil is a fabulous product. I would say iConduct, there's so much to enjoy from that. And it's just, a, it's quickly growing. There's lots of people paying attention to it. We're very lucky to have been talking to him and just really in the inception stages of this, because I think it's a project that will continue to grow because he's the type of person that will put the effort towards it that needs for it to grow. It just won't be like this thing that everybody liked and then dies on the vine. It'll, it'll, it, no. We'll see this come to fruition for years to come, for sure. Yeah, well, he kind of got the idea of, from Noun Project, which still requires you to give credit for every icon you use, even though it's free. Um, but he's, you know, scoured the web and found icons that you don't have to give credit for, and they, they are free. So that's cheers, you know, that's a good thing. Now that you've watched this episode, you've got some takeaways from me and Becky. Here's one thing that we're going to ask from you, and that's to tell somebody about the episode. That means whether you liked it, whether you got a certain nugget from it and you want to share that specific nugget, whatever it is, but go on social media, post about this, tell somebody about this. And if you do share this and let us know about it, we'll be happy to increase your cloudinary plan by one credit. That's going to ultimately help with your plans to give you a little bit more room for storage or bandwidth or transformations and make that next project that you're working on with your Cloudinary account that much easier to use just for spreading the word that these podcasts exist and we're putting out quality content from quality developers. Also, if regardless of what you're listening to, whether it's Spotify or YouTube or Apple Podcasts or the Cloudinary Academy, we're in lots of places, but wherever you're watching or listening, if you can indicate that you liked it or have a chance to subscribe to our content, that makes all the difference in the world to us and all the goals that we're trying to hit with this program because we want to be able to reach more and more developers and help them with their projects with content like this. So with that said, on behalf of everybody at Cloudinary, and I'll speak for Oliver on behalf of Oliver too, thank you for <laughs> watching DevJams. Thank you for listening to DevJams. And we will hopefully have you around for the next episode. See you then. Thank you. Bye.